But if you don't even know who I am, my name's Derek. Um, honestly, this whole night's kind of wasn't planned this way, but between that video and what I'm going to talk about and just the ask us anything, I just, I just think God has big plans for this evening, and I, I just think every Thursday is such a privilege to be with you guys and open up truth and, and look at it. And there's a fascinating story um, at the end of Jesus' life. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of 2 Timothy. Paul is a guy who was passing on some things to his protege, Timothy, and... Um, a lot of that stuff just has to do with this person named Jesus that Paul and Timothy are both um, just in awe of. And so we're going to get in 2 Timothy, but there's a scene at the end of Jesus' life that has always just kind of stuck with me. And Jesus is talking on the eve or um, the day, really, of his death to Pontius Pilate, who's kind of holding the keys to what's going to happen to Jesus. And Jesus is talking, having a conversation one-on-one with, with Pilate, and he's saying how his kingdom is a heavenly one, not an earthly one, and says, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would fight right now. But it's not. And Pilate says, so so you are a king then. Jesus says, well, you said it, not me. And I'll tell you this, I was born for this moment of coming to the world for this very reason, to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. To which Pilate responds, and this is what's always stuck with me, what is truth? Like, if everyone listens to you, Jesus, because you're the truth... What even is that? Way before we had this like relativistic, subjective world that we live inside of, Pilate's asking, what's truth, Jesus? And he, I think he does it in a way that's like honest and shocking. And I don't know if there's a more important question in the like, entire universe than like, what is truth or what is the truth? The most religious people in the Gospels as you study Jesus' life As you read through those biographies, the most religious people, there's these moments where they're trying to stump Jesus over truth claims. But then they aren't even concerned with Jesus' answers to the questions. And so their their heart posture all along wasn't to like get to the truth. It was to like try and stump Jesus and let their worldview continue to be the reigning one. They were obsessed with self-preservation, maintaining the status quo of being able to save themselves. And they missed the entire importance of truth discovery because they had already discovered, or rather created, a system of religion that was true to them, but was objectively not true. And so that's what you see a lot of the religious people doing to Jesus. And I don't want us to be like the religious hypocrites. I don't want us to be like the women in 2 Timothy 3, if you were here two weeks ago, and I unpacked that passage where it said, they're always learning and yet never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, right? They got the same disease as Taylor Swift. She has this thing where she gets older, but never wiser, right? And I didn't say that two weeks ago, and it's just gold money, so I had to say it now, right? It's the same thing, like literally. I get older, but I don't get any wiser, because I'm not getting any closer to what's actually true, and so I just feel like I'm spinning the next thing after the next thing. I don't want us to be like... My trigonometry teacher in high school, Mr. Trekker, who we'll get to later. Maybe. Honestly, I might even not get there. But he has his own little philosophy about life and everything that was just crazy to me as a high school student and still is. So we've got a Bible. Second Timothy uh, is where we're going to be at. And what I want us to do tonight is instead be like Pontius Pilate, who is at least asking the right question, right? What is truth? I want us to be like Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman. Anybody know who that is? Who know? What is it? Who are they? Mythbusters, baby. Yeah. 
as a middle school kid, Derek Jones would watch Mythbusters before and after school a lot. I just loved it. I don't know if that was part of how God used, like, my story of, like, hey, I want you to be curious about, like, busting myths, and eventually I'm going to use that curiosity in you to lead you to me. I don't know. But Adam and Savage, Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman, yeah, they're the Mythbusters. If you've never seen the show, it's great. I wanted to show a clip of it, but, like, even four minutes on one and a half speed, I was like, probably not worth it for my 35 minutes to give my sermon, so I'm not going to show it. They just go around busting myths, right? Like, is a banana peel slippery? I don't even know. We just see it so much in the cartoons that it might not be, but I believe that it is, right? Stuff like that. Uh, the one I was going to show you is like, can you curve a bullet like the show wanted, you know? And it's like, no, you can't, but they, they can in that movie, so maybe you can, Right? Mythbusters, two guys who have made a killing off realizing truth is a valuable pursuit. I want us to be people that can answer the question a little more fully tonight. Like, what is truth? I want us to be people that are growing in the ability to answer that question and know where to go. So as you look at 2 Timothy 3, I think this is what Paul wants for Timothy 2. Sorry, 2 Timothy 4. I finished chapter 3. I'm just going to read the first We'll get through the first five verses of Second Timothy chapter 4. Paul's last words. Um, so yeah, just his dearly loved son in the faith. Verse 1, chapter 4, Paul says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearance and his kingdom, Timothy preached the word, be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Here's what I want us to see. The solemn charge that Paul opens with and kind of closes with in verse 5. And then he gives this solemn charge because he tells Timothy, a time's going to come when there's going to be myths. Right? And people are going to turn aside because their ears itch to hear what they want to hear. They want, they want to hear things that already align with what they currently believe. And they don't want somebody come preach to them and tell them something different than what they currently believe. And so just know that that's coming, Timothy. And here's my solemn charge to you in the midst of that, right? A charge. Like think of a charge into battle. He's going to go, here's my charge. And yeah, be aware there's, there's going to be some chaos. And so let's, let's just unpack the charge a little bit. He says, I solemnly charge you. Like solemnly. Here's my, please, Timothy, do this. And he adds weight to this, this solemn charge by going, I charge you before God and Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead. And because he's going to appear again, and because he has a real kingdom that's eternal, here's my charge. Preach the word. Be ready. In season, out of season. Rebuke, correct. Do all the things. But he says, do it with the right posture, right? Encourage people with great patience and teaching. Because they're going to want to hear what their ears want them to hear, but they're you're going to need to teach them, Timothy. You're going to need to show them that there is real truth. That the things they're believing are myths that aren't going to lead to flourishing. So his charge is, is pretty simple, right? Especially because Timothy's a pastor in this place called Ephesus, and he's like, hey, you know the truth, Timothy. 
bank your life on it and proclaim him. He says it's, that Timmy's, Timothy's to be ready in season and out of season, right? Like vintage fashion is like in season again, you know? Very in season. If you have a graphic tee that's old, you are cool, okay? High-waisted shorts on dudes. That was like when my dad played basketball in the 80s. Not at all for any portion of my life. And now all of a sudden again, like you need to show your quads or you're not cool, gentlemen. It's weird. There's a season for a lot of stuff. But there's not a season for Timothy to not be ready to preach what's true because it never goes out of style. And it's always good for people. And so my question is, do you think the gospel, the good news, if you have any familiarity with the gospel, and I say that word, do you think it's in or out of season on your campus? If Timothy's to be ready, let's say Timothy shows up to our campus with this message, you think it's in season? Like, yeah, go kill all the rabbits you can, rabbit season, duck season. Or do you think it's out of season? Like, Timothy's going to have a real hard time here. Honestly, I, I don't hear anybody shouting it out, and I think that's because you maybe feel like I do, if like, I don't actually know. Because on the one hand, I think what Paul's talking about in this text of the time coming when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, want to hear what they want to hear, I think there's a ton of truth to that, right? Where you'd go, yeah, maybe the gospel is out of style, it's out of season. Like our ears do tickle to hear things that sound nice and us not actually get super curious about what's, what's underneath this, the nice-sounding things. People want preachers who tell them what they want to hear, that what they're already doing and believing is just fine. We don't love the feeling of like when our consciences are, are poked at, right? It's literally what led me to move out of my dorm room freshman year into an apartment with other guys who are worse than me instead of keep living with the dude who is actually the only godly person I knew my sophomore year. I was like, my conscience, I wouldn't even express that, but that's what was going on. Like, "Ah, I want to live you more guilt-free, so. The human condition is such that all of us, as Romans 1 would put it, by our unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Like, that's what we do. Like a basketball in water, you know, you're just like, I don't know. And since you were a baby, you've been pushing that basketball down. And so I think there's some, some reality to these verses. But I also think that basketball of truth is just waiting to spring to the surface in so many ways. And I get the incredible privilege as your college pastor to get to see when that happens and how frequently it's, it happens here. And it's awesome. It's felt like ever since we moved here in 2020, the more people we get the message to, the more people that get saved. And I go, I don't, in season. This has been Awesome. God is actually doing stuff. It gives me so much hope. I expected when we moved to a place as, you know, just dark and lost as people said Bloomington was, that I would have so much hostility and negativity towards the work we were doing. And honestly, God has just been blowing a highway. Like we have had gatekeepers at the university be so favorable to us. Just the most recent example. Embassy Church getting booted out of the Woolery Mill the week after Easter, which like in church world is like the second best biggest Sunday of the year, you know, week after Easter, we can't meet at the Woolery Mill. So we're like, let's meet at the IMU, you know? And they're like, great, I'll meet, I got a student org status, let's reserve a space, blah, blah, And it was like, hey, it's going to cost 2K. I'm like, well, oh, that's quite a bit, you know, but it's going to be a lot of people, like, worth it. 
but hey, can we get that price down? Sure, 400 bucks. Okay, great. Like literally, I'm just like, I don't know. The campus is like, yeah, you can totally. In season. People's ears seem to be itching for something real, for something true. People here seem to be kind of fed up with like, I don't know what to believe anymore, and so maybe I should start asking hard questions. I'm overall insanely hopeful for the future of the gospel on this campus. I just want you to know that. As much as it's out of season, it is so in season because people want to know what's true. People want a myth buster to come in and go, that ain't true here. Know this. And Paul is telling Timothy, hey, there's going to be people like that in Ephesus, and so you need to tell them, in season, out of season, be ready. Speak the truth. Do it in a way that's gentle and patient and teaching. But what I really want to do with the bulk of this sermon is look at some of the surrounding myths that are going on in your culture. All right, Paul tells Timothy to expect these things, and 2,000 years later, we should expect some things. And I think it's right for us to go, what are the myths that from the time I came out of my mother's womb, I've just grown up in a culture that believes X, Y, and Z, whether they're true or not. And this feels like, you know, the old story of a frog jumps in the water and there's a couple of fish. He's like, man, water's great today, huh, boys? And the fish are like, yeah, (laughs) nervous laugh. Frog swims away and they're like, dude, what the heck is water? Right, like to explain a to a fish what water is is impossible. They don't know life without water. You guys don't know life without the secular, individualistic American culture that you've grown up in. You don't know life apart from that water. So I think it's right sometimes in sermons like this to go, hey, if I'm going to be able to like slot truth in anywhere, we got to look at the myths. My aim is not to poke holes, okay, at society or launch grenades. I don't need to do any hole poking. My aim is to gently and lovingly reveal to you the holes that are there. And even remove the duct tape from those holes as you try to carry, carry water around if I need to, which removing duct tape never feels like the best. But it's important to evaluate, like, what is the bucket I'm holding? Like, does this, does this even hold weight? Does this hold water? Does the stuff I believe even line up or make any sense? I think truth that comes from the God of all truth, who I believe created every single person in this room, is the only truth that actually has the ability to hold any water. So the holes in your thinking, worse than simply leaking water, are actually preventing you from living an abundant, flourishing, overflowing sort of life. What culture would call a prison about Christianity, right? Like Christianity is trying to put you in a box enslave you, say no to desires that are good for you. The Bible would take that same analogy and go, no, it's, it's like a clay vessel that actually has been beautifully mended back together so that it can hold this thing called glory that you were created for. Instead of creating your own cheap forms of glory that are actually enslaving you, why don't you come and just let me put you back together and fill you with something you've never been able to find apart from me? So what are myths? Myths are what we make up to make sense of reality. They're not necessarily the reality themselves. And something moves into myth territory when it doesn't hold up to reality and the way things actually are, and therefore it becomes a myth. All myths are man-made, but all truths are God-made. Okay, that's the key difference between a myth and a truth. Myths all come from us. 
truths can only come from the God of the universe who made everything in this room, including us. So one truth before we get into the myths, these myths are things that you and I have been swimming in all day, like I said. Like, I just want you to believe me when I say you don't even know really what the myths you hold too dearly are because that's just part of the human condition. 20 years ago, a book came out called Soul Searching, The Religious Lives of Teenagers. And it's the book that coined this term, moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, that was this author's way of describing the cultural moment in the lives of teenagers. As they're moral, so there's a, there's, they're moralistic, but the moralism's mostly therapeutic, like they've got to come up with a structure to feel good about themselves, and then there's kind of this deity to it. And that's a deviation from Christianity and this kind of new Christianity where moralistic therapeutic deism was the, the kind of phrase that took off that, that he started to use to describe the cultural moment. And that was 20 years ago. That's what shocked me about this. If that was 20 years ago, that means that was like your parents and now it's everyone. Like that, that has seeped down. That was teenagers 20 years ago. They're now adults. And that's the predominant sort of language to, I think, some of the water we find ourselves in. So I want to play a game called Spot the Myth, okay? Spot the Myth. I'm just going to tell you something or show you an image, and you just have to go myth or truth. So here's number one. I helped at track practice this afternoon at Bloomington North High School because I've been doing that. And as I was leaving the high school, my back bumper got destroyed by a high school kid, okay? Myth or truth? True. Okay. Now, you're, you're mostly right, okay, which is part of the point of my illustration, because I said two weeks ago, lies are rampant, but all the best lies sound really true. And that, what happened to me today was I was sitting at the stop sign leaving North High School, and I got, like, what just happened? But my back bumper is not destroyed, because I've left a hitch on my truck for this very moment. And so that kid went home with a giant hole in his bumper, and I, my truck is totally fine. <laughs> Mostly true. See, but the myth was so hard to just be like, oh, I don't know. I don't buy it. But if you knew me, you've seen that hitch a billion times. Here's some more images. You got the, my images? This is just an Airbnb I was staying at a week ago. And I knew I was preaching this sermon, so I took a picture of a couple signs. This one says, mind your own biscuits and life will be gravy. Okay, that sounds, like, my ears like that. My ears are itching. That sounds like a good thing that should be like a song lyric or something. In fact, I think it is. Here's what's, what's kind of true about that is you need to mind your own biscuits sometimes. What's a myth is, like, if you always mind your own biscuits, life's not always gravy, right? Show the next one. Follow your arrow wherever it points. Oh, that's awesome. What a great sign. Review great signs in the Airbnb. What's, what's wrong with this one? It's not even really like a truth claim, is it? Like, it's just advice, which I think, as I was prepping for this, is what most of us hear all the time. And so it becomes easy to know what the advice of our culture is, but it becomes almost impossible to identify the truths or lies underneath that advice. So this is neither myth or truth. It's just something that sounds good, but it came from somewhere. 
and all of our cultural taglines come from somewhere, and they're going to land on our ears all day long. What I want you to see is that whether you follow Jesus or not, whether you follow Jesus or not, it's worth it to ask the question of what is underneath that good-sounding advice. And I think what's underneath the advice of follow your arrow wherever it points is really actually close to one of the core myths of our day that I want to get, get us to. But before I do, I asked some of you guys in the room about a week ago, what, what are some of the myths you feel like are common on your campus? I asked some of our student leaders this question. It was like easy. Because they're, they've got some skill at identifying myths. And number one was live your truth. Live your truth is really similar to follow your arrow wherever it points. It sounds like good advice. You could say be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. All, those three things all have the same like, kind of idea, right? That was number one out of our student leaders that I was thankful for because I want to circle back to that one. Another one was, hey, sin is only stuff that hurts other people. Like you can't, like you literally don't even have the ability to like really harm yourself. Sin's just the stuff you do that like harms other people. Now we're dipping into territory that's negative. Manifesting things. I don't even know how to like put this one. It's just like, I don't know, people talk about like manifesting stuff. Is that true? And they kind of said this one in like a way that was like, like, ah, this seems crazy. But I'm like, no, that doesn't seem crazy at all. Like, I've read the book The Secret. I've watched the Netflix. I've read the book Think and Grow Rich. Like, there's something true going on here. But is it ultimate? Is it full send true every single time, no matter what? I think the truth underneath, like, manifesting things is, like, what you focus on, your heart grows for, it is more likely that if my life was driven only by money, I would have more money than I have right now. Like, it, I just would. I would be able to manifest some money, probably, but not guaranteed. And so it breaks down. Right? I know people that have been manifesting things for years that they don't have. They're going to die without those things. So it's like it doesn't work one-to-one, but it kind of works. So how do we... I don't know. You should just manifest stuff because sometimes it works. And there's a lot of Bible that talks about, like, we're, we as Christians are being transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory as we do what? Behold Jesus. Like, as we stare at Jesus, we become like Jesus. That's literally how the Bible talks about it. So there's a truth there. You become what you behold is a Bible truth. And so if I behold money, I become like money, or at least driven by it. So manifesting things, I don't think there's ultimate truth there, but I think there's a lot of truth there. I go, yeah, it makes sense that we would say stuff like this. Try it before you buy it. Doesn't apply to just cars, but relationships, right? Like underneath that advice is a belief that you need to like test something out fully if you're going to stand there before God and everyone else and make a marriage vow. That's the belief. You, you, like, you would be insane to not try something if you have the opportunity to before you buy that thing. But a really helpful question is just like, how's it working? How's that, how's that advice if you just do it working? Before we even go like underneath it, let's just look at the divorce rate skyrocketing in our country as we've developed somewhere this belief of like, if I try it before I buy it, that's somehow better for marriage and for me and for every, everyone.
I'm not even going to get into crystals and astrology. But I do want to get to what some smarter people than any of us in this room have talked about this idea. And they're not even, a lot of them are not even Christians, okay? But psychologists are working very hard to understand our cultural moment at all times. Even while we're sleeping, people are diving into this stuff like, why are we the way that we are, blah, blah, blah. And there's some really good stuff, okay? So I'm going to reference a few books here. Please don't fall asleep. My sermon's going to be over before you know it. And I want you to understand your water. First book I want to reference is a book called Coddling of the American Mind, okay? Coddling of the American Mind. Secular psychologists, they looked at the world and went, what's wrong with, with us? And here's the three, the three things they kind of came up with. A giant untruth that humans are fragile. A giant untruth of we should just use emotional reasoning for everything. And a giant untruth that everything should become an us versus them ideology. And so the untruth of human fragility basically says what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, so you need to protect yourself. People are weak, and we need to keep them safe. Never expose them, especially young people, to situations that make them anxious or stressed. Do not do that. That's underneath the untruth of human fragility. And what's fascinating about this book is they look at, like, what's ancient wisdom say? Like, their advice is like, maybe we need to go back to, like, ancient wisdom here and rewrite some of these untruths that are leading to problems in our society. And so the, the truth they suggest is humans are actually resilient and anti-fragile. Humans are actually some of the most resilient beings in the universe. The point shouldn't just be to make someone safe, but to make them strong. So there's all these fascinating examples about, I can't get into it. But here's what James 1 says. Let's get to some Bible. James 1 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of any kind. You know, trials leads to a lot of good stuff for your life. Do we believe that? Or when we face trials, we go, why me? This sucks. We're actually stronger than we think we are, and we're a heck of a lot stronger when we realize that I can have a strength that comes from outside of me that God himself wants to give me as I walk with him and learn to grow in maturity and wisdom. That's, that's crazy. I can conquer anything with Jesus, literally. Not even death can separate me from him. What do I have to be afraid of? I am so anti-fragile as a Christian. It's incredible. The untruth of emotional reasoning says always, 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 always trust your feelings. Don't let people push back on them. Follow your heart no matter what. I'd love to just like give Kurt the mic to come up and speak to this one, right? And the wisdom from the book they say is ancient that we need to go back to is we are all prone to misinterpreting our feelings. And it's quite possible that our own thoughts are our own worst enemy. That's like... We're losing that idea completely in culture where it's like, you need to question your thoughts and desires. No, you can't do that in our culture. James says, wickedness comes from us. Don't, don't look at God and go, you know, you're tempting me. It's like, no, we, our hearts are deceitful above all things. That's what the Bible would say. That's so against what our culture, the, the culture you grew up in would say about our feelings. And I'm not saying emotions are bad. Emotions, I think, are good but they're not to be the guide for all of life. Sometimes your emotions are wrong. The untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. We need to fight back against anyone who's against us. If you're not totally for me and affirm my feelings, then you must hate me. 
We see this polarization politically and in everything else, which is furthered by social media. We've just gotten so group divided. And that didn't, wasn't true like 30 years ago in our country, really. And this is the ancient wisdom from the book. The line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart, they would say. Therefore, others are not as bad as you think they are, and you are not as good as you think you are. When you come at people with that realization, like, okay, all the most evil dudes in the Bible I can relate to because I got some of that living in me, legitimately. And all the best dudes in the Bible, all the heroes, they got sin too, except for Jesus. Here's what the Bible says. No one is righteous, no, not one person. With our tongue, we bless and curse. But wisdom that comes from above, from God, is pure and gentle and knows how to respect people. There's compassion, there's conviction. I want to just read for you um, from another book, just the table of contents, okay? So if you're asleep, wake up. It's just the table of contents. It's a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution um, by a girl who... Mind you, IU has been uh, on the front edge of pushing forward the sexual revolution in our culture. If you didn't know that about your university, like, welcome to IU. It's, it's very proud of, like, the things we've pushed forward in this area in the last couple of decades. And this book was written by an atheist, secular, feminist, liberal, scholarly female. Like, a, an ideal candidate for a job at IU. Literally. Seriously. And let me just give you the table of contents of this book that she wrote that might as well have come straight out of the Bible because she started to look at the culture around her and go, I don't think the stuff we've been doing is right. I think there's a ton of problems if we keep this up. And here's her table of contents. It's just shocking. Fantastic book that doesn't mince any words and might be hard for some of you to read. Number one, sex must be taken seriously. Chapter two, Men and women are different. Chapter three, some desires are bad. Chapter four, loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. Thank you, Siri. Siri's like, amen, brother. <laughs> chapter seven, people are not products. And chapter eight, marriage is good. Secular, liberal, atheist, feminist, Straight Bible. Culture is on a bus that's headed over a cliff, and even secular atheist feminist liberals are waking up to it. And some of us in this room are so scared to get off that bus ourselves as Christians. Don't, please don't, as a young Christian college student, hop on that bus yourself during this prime pivotal moment where you can actually help throw down the rope that's been tied to the same rugged cross for 2,000 years to people that are going to want to grab that rope at some point, and you could be there showing them the way. I have so much more book recommendations and stuff that we could talk about. I think if there's anything that I want you to hear as like a prime myth in your culture, it's that be true to yourself mindset that live your truth idea, that advice, that underneath of it is a you first, or rather a me first, view of the world 
that's so contrary to how the scriptures talk about none of us being there at the beginning of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the gospel, the good news is always going to come at you and go, God first, others second, you third, true flourishing. And culture all day is going to go, no, we need to trust all of our intuitions. We need to be done with religious institution and instead make, make up these religious intuitions. And it's this idea of expressive individualism. And the gospel's going to come out and challenge any view of life that makes you the center. And if the first and greatest commandment in our culture is be true to yourself, then the unforgivable sin is to be false to yourself, to not affirm your heart and your feelings and your desires. That's unthinkable in many parts of our culture. Why would you do that? And therefore, if that's the greatest commandment, then sin is not being true to yourself. And the solution is not repentance, not turning away from but reaffirming, standing true in yourself. And a society wrapped up in the true-to-yourself ideology might believe the second command is like the first one, and that's to affirm and applaud whatever yourself or your neighbor chooses to do and believe. It's the greatest sin is to deny yourself or question or judge someone else's self-expression. That's kind of the predominant view of our culture. And the gospel is going to displace you at the center of that equation and go, you matter so much to God, but you were never supposed to be the point. That's way too much pressure for you to bear. The biggest problem is then not that we feel guilty, it's that we are guilty. Expressive individualism leads to a ton of things. Loneliness, the sexual revolution, which I've already mentioned. So many different things, I think, flow from this idea. I just wish I had 20 sermons to talk about it, really. I said I would talk about my math teacher, Mr. Traeger, so I guess I have to. Um, one of the things that expressive individualism leads to is this view that like, we need to really personalize all aspects of our faith and like I said, move from institutional religion to intuitional religion, and so you get a million pseudo-religions, and it's no longer like, how many Catholics and Protestants are there, and Mormons and Muslims? It's like, no, we have a million of a million types of things. Because people have decided, I'm the, I'm the primary being that decides what truth is, and therefore, this is slightly different than your truth, so I'm going to... And so my math teacher, Mr. Traeger, was ahead of the times on this. He had five tattoos of Shih Tzus all over his body. Occasionally, he'd wear a semi-see-through shirt where you could see not just the one of his forearm that you could always see because he always rolled his sleeve up, but you could see the one on his chest and one of the ones on his back. He had super long white hair, total Dumbledore vibes, and he had his own religion called Traegerism, okay? It was, I don't know what it was about, some sort of Shih Tzu, math, Scientology. But the whole reason he did that was because he could claim it as a thing and not pay taxes on his house. That, I mean, it's like, doesn't take a genius to figure out what triggerism is all about. Here's the point, though. Triggerism is obviously poo-poo, okay? Unfortunately, though, unfortunately, hear me. I am highly, highly susceptible to my own form of Jonesism. That's also poo-poo. And so are you. So are you. 
I'd love to talk to you about Carl Truman and the rise and triumph of the modern self or his more bite-sized book that I've actually read instead of that one called Strange New World. I'd love to send you some videos, sermons on a guy named Trevin Wax who unpacks like four of the major myths in our culture today for the church. But really, I just want to give you guys not, uh, not read for you the, the solemn charge that Paul gives Timothy, but remind us of it and just give you guys a final charge of like in this moment, in this not just cultural moment, but this pivotal moment in your life where you're sitting in college classes trying to figure out what truth is and learn stuff. I want you to fall in love with truth with a capital T whose name is Jesus who said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to discover who he is. Cling to him. Share him. Reap the joy of knowing your purpose and your home that you can be moving towards. The Bible is true and altogether trustworthy, but it's not described as the truth. Jesus goes, I'm the truth. This whole thing is about me. Come to me. I loved what Kurt said. Like, hey, the whole point was like, I needed to meet Jesus first. Then I figured all the like, how to do life stuff out. To be a Christian is being entrusted with the truth that changes everything, a beautiful and powerful and gentle truth. How are you stewarding your access to that truth if you're a Christian? Paul gives tons of application to Timothy in verse five. I think it'd be great for you to just talk about that in your campus group this week. He says, Timothy, as for you who have the truth, be self-controlled, endure the hardship, do the work of an evangelist. It just means share the truth, share the message. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Timothy had a specific ministry. So do you. God wants to use you to do something very specific on this campus. You don't have to figure it out. You just have to lean into him and he'll use you. And so fall in love with truth, the capital T. And as you do, grow in in what I call compassion and conviction. Compassion and conviction. Like this is the space I think we need to live in as Christians in a world like ours. And if we separate either one of these two things from each other, we're in a pretty ugly ditch. And culture's gonna wanna put you in one of those ditches by either going, hey, do you affirm me or do you hate me? If you don't totally agree with my feelings and how I feel, then you must hate me. And we as Christians need to learn how to interact with people in gentle and patient and teaching ways to go, no, I have so much compassion for you, but I also have conviction that I would love to have the opportunity to have a real relationship and share with you because I actually think it could change your life like it's changed mine. Because the God of the universe had compassion on me when I was dead in sin, when I had no idea who Jesus was and only wanted to reject and resist him. He had compassion on me and he's the truth. We need compassion for people like Paul, like Jesus had. We also can't be afraid to have real conviction because truth is good. My prayer today has been that I hope you feel a level of compassion and conviction here at Salt Company. Like as you come here, I want you to know like you can bring whatever your story is into this room. I want to hear it. I hope it comes out a little bit in how we teach the Bible here, how you interact with staff. I hope you feel compassion and conviction from the friend that invited you to this thing. 
Because Jesus has an incredible amount of compassion for you, and he also wants to point you to the truth that's been there the whole time, even while you were chasing other things. And I'd love to ask you the question of how it's going, living out your truth. Like, how is it going? Do you feel like there's some holes in that bucket? Do you feel like there's just maybe the potential that there's an actual better way? That there's actually a slightly different purpose that you were made for? Maybe a myth you believe like I did for 20 years was Christianity is a particular set of rules. It's just a different framework for morality not a framework for trusting a savior primarily. Christianity is primarily about following all the rules rather than falling in love with the person of Jesus. That is a myth. Christianity will tell you that yes, you have sinned. And sin is not just the stuff you do that harms other people. Sin is anything that is would reject the God who made you and loves you, and you've, we've all done it. You have rejected him. And that's deserving of punishment, and yet God came down to take away that punishment for you, and he put it on Jesus. And Jesus was so perfect and so good and so true that not even death and all the punishment for our sin could hold him in the grave. He got up. When you come to that Jesus and see him as the truth, everything starts to change. And I love hearing stories of change that God's doing in your guys' life. It, it gives me so much joy. And when I hear you guys say stuff like, I couldn't believe it was actually better to follow Jesus. Like, I just couldn't believe that. I just go, I know, I know. So let's pray, and if, if you're in here and you're intri intrigued and you don't know what to believe about this stuff, would you just pray that, to the God of the universe, would you beg him to help you see the truth? If you're in here and you're mad at something I said, would you ask the God of the universe to reveal to you why you're so mad? And if you want, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And if you're in here and you do believe Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life, would you thank him for giving you life that is truly life? Just beg him to help you continue to fall in love with his, his way as you grow in compassion and conviction. God, we need you. We need grace. Grace is truly an amazing and powerful thing. And if there's going to be any turning aside from myths that lead to death and turning towards truth tonight in this room, we need you to pour out grace. God, we know we can't change our own heart. We certainly can't change our friends' hearts. Only you can do that. That's why we pray to end every sermon. That's why we say amen, which just means so be it. God, would you do it? Would you just show us as we go through life? Would you help us get not older and never wiser, but older and actually wiser? and more rooted in what's true and more able to share that truth with others in season and out of season because the gospel is the best news that I've ever heard. 
And so would you help us be good stewards of that truth? And would you help us let that truth fuel our, our worship even in this moment tonight as we get an opportunity to sing songs that are true about who you are? We love you. We thank you for Jesus.